Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tananari do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. hey everybody. Welcome. Oh, there's the applause. There's the applause. They were stunned. They were stunned silent for a moment. So uh, <laughs> welcome, darling. We have a super cool guest today Joe I know. Hill. I'm, I'm not gonna like, keep him waiting but we I'm will so stoked it's I know this waiting for very we long won't time. not very long but you know how we do if you're a faithful listener to the podcast at the very beginning we like to talk a little bit about you know what's going on <laughs> such a celebration <laughs> Good to be back. We just did a, a best of life writing last week, which was actually, I think, very topical for authors who want to learn how to have a hand in their own adaptations, you know. So check that out if you missed it. Victor Laval talked about it. And as you may know, he has the Changeling now on Apple TV Plus. And yeah, he's really out there uh, pioneering. So that's what we did last week. What are you working on, darling? Oh, God, I'm finishing up the Mace Windu novel, the Star Wars novel. I'm going through using Speechify uh, to read the manuscript to me in Barack Obama's voice, <laughs> which oh, is great fun. I, mean, I already had Snoop Dogg reading it. That Snoop voice does not way. work for me. I'm sorry. I just, no. No, it's, it's <laughs> like, you know, hey, D-O-double-G, here's my <laughs> lightsaber. You know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a, a limit to how far I can go with that. Yeah. But getting a sense of the flow you know, just like that word pops out that, that you know, that the, you know, it, the whole thing is that, that music is what happens between the notes and poetry is what happens between the words. The same thing is true of the poetics of language in a story. You know, it, cinematically, you know, you have that kind of Eisensteinian montage thing where you take one image and collide it with another image to create a sense of emotional violence in 
books, you have that, you know, Chip Delaney was talking about the, the trans-derivational search. Oh, that wasn't the word he used. That's from, from, a, from a different discipline. But it's that each word, your, your reader has to go into their mind to, to find the definition of the word. And then you have the next word, and they have to do the same thing. So what the writer is doing in some ways is choreographing where the reader's mind goes by leading them with words with images, with phrases, callbacks to previous works, that other works of art or other aspects of life. So you're not just looking at the denotative meaning of a sentence. You're asking yourself, what does the reader have to do to parse this sentence? And in my mind, the best way to do that is to listen to it. Because wow. we learn to listen to stories before we learn to read stories, let alone write stories. Okay. First of all, I'm glad you started using words I knew. So thank you for that. <laughs> and also, I'm a huge audio reader. So I 100% agree with you. I, I I love audio. I love being in that child state of having a story yes. read to me, you know. So that's always fun. You go into that once upon a time place. And it's, 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 it's really good. So, you know, going through the manuscript, a little frightening. Because, you know, whenever I get notes back from an editor, there's, there's one part of my stomach that feels like I've gotten kicked by a horse. It's the worst. You know, it, it, it's, it feels bad. Yeah. So I like to read over it with a little distance from it. And then the first time I go through it, I just do the low-hanging fruit. What are the easiest edits to make? Which gives me time to ease past that sick feeling in my stomach and start seeing, oh, this is, this is just a body of work that needs to be done. Well, so that's great. That's fun. Go for it. What about so, you? I am working on the first draft of our uh, plague short story, which is due April 1st. So it's about that time, you know, to give it room to breathe as the protagonists come to life. Surprise, surprise, they're children. <laughs> you know, what a shock. And also I'm finishing the last revisions on a couple of indie comics, one of which is for a shook anthology that we crowdfunded featuring Black women creators. Another one is a take on a werewolf story. So just doing some shorter works. Is that, the were is that our werewolf story? Our werewolf. No, yeah. my werewolf story. Ours is the vampire story. Okay, that's right. Vampire. And I want to get these short works off my plate completely before I start diving into my next novel, which I tentatively call Bear Creek Lodge, but it hasn't been announced really yet. So I can't wait to talk more about what's happening with that. But you know what? We do have a great guest. Yes. Let's and I'm feeling like... Let's bring on our guests, right? Yes, so, absolutely. Joe Hill is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Fireman, Heart Shaped Box, and Strange Weather, which I'm reading right now, Strange Weather. Much of his work has been adapted for film and television. His second novel, Horns, was made into a cult horror comedy starring Daniel Radcliffe. His third novel, Nosferatu, was adapted for television by AMC. Love that series. And his short story, The Black Phone, was adapted for the big screen. Also, I love that. That was really good. So good. Lock and Key is his long-running comic book, also adapted. There's so, actually there's so much here in this bio. I could an go embarrassment of riches. It's an embarrassment of riches. But let's just bring on New York Times bestseller, Joe Hill. <laughs> All oh, that fanfare. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I, I wanted to open up by saying I know most people are listening to this, but there might some people might get to see video clips. And I want to establish that's not a sex swing in the back of my office. <laughs> I've been looking at it. I've just been looking at it the last minute thinking, huh, that's that's a pull up bar. Yes. Pull up bar. I've got it. I've got one in my office. He has the identical one. The sex it's swing almost is exactly the same. Corner. 
okay, the sex swing is in the other corner, he says. So. <laughs> Which so, is also let me ask you a question, because we, we do talk a lot about process here. Do you break up your writing time? In other words, do you go over there and do some pull-ups and some of this, like you know, every hour on the hour sort of thing, or do you just from time to time? Um, do I, I don't know that I, I, I don't break up. I certainly don't break up my writing time to exercise. You know, I, I try to make time to work out after the kids go to bed, you know, three times a week, but I'm pitiful at it. You know, I, I, I'm a tea drinker and, you know, the great thing about needing to make tea is it takes about 10 minutes, you know, to go down and boil the water and get it just right. And usually that's enough time to clear the mechanism right? and, you know, come back relatively refined. about how often do you need to take breaks to stay sharp um it um that's a good question i mean it depends on how it's going when it's more more frequently when i'm feeling defeated you know if i'm sitting there feeling like uh this is hard uh, it's typing know, I, sometimes when for me yeah the hardest part of writing is when it just feels like typing yeah, if I can't push my way into the story and so I'm just lining up sentences and I can't get the sound right and, you know, and then you start to, uh, you know, you start to overthink things. Have I spent too long on this moment? Um, you know, is the story moving fast enough? Do we even need this scene? Did we even need the last scene? Do we even need this book? Do we need this character? <laughs> yes. Do we, you know... <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, we've all been there. You know, Joe, I finally, I was trying to rack my brain over how we first connected. I hope I didn't cut you off in the middle of a sentence. No, not at all. Oh, no, okay, no, great. Oh. okay, great. Okay, great. Okay. How did we first connect? I don't remember anymore. I think now I know. I finally figured it out. In 2020, during the initial COVID lockdown, I was a virtual moderator for a showrunner's panel, and I met the showrunner of Nosferatu. And I believe- she was the one who who connected us, right? So, yeah, Steve and I had my book, the De- the Between and Development at AMC at the time, and I just I was like, how did I meet Joe over email? But now I just want to thank you, sort of in person, for how you supported my my books last year with your blurbs for the Wishing Pool. Oh yeah, well, the, the reformatory. reformatory. Thank you, but the the reformatory was the best thing I read last year. I love the oh. reformatory. That's a really it's a it's you know I feel like it's a you know I feel like it's a lasting classic. You what? know, that's one oh of these books. God. Yeah, it's one of these books like Ghost Story. You know, people are still gonna you know, decade from now, two decades from now, people are still gonna go back to it. It's really scary. It's humane and human. It it is a really powerful exploration of a time and a place that is in it in of itself frightening, you know, set aside the ghost, just the time and place is yes. frightening. And, you know, Stephen was talking about, Stephen was talking about putting words together, you know, that each word is a choice that sort of, you know, um, flips another switch in the reader's brain. And, and I think a lot of the work, especially if you write commercial fiction, if you write suspenseful, suspenseful fiction is, is, is to make sure that you've lined up you know, those words in a way that creates the least friction possible. So mm-hmm. you're doing as much work, you're carrying most of the weight so that the reader can fly. Uh, and so and well one, of the things, one of the things that I think is really powerful about the reformatory is that the reader can fly from the first page to the ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And making a book that easy and that much fun is hard, really, really hard. That's that art conceals art thing. It was yeah, hard. exactly. 
Oh my God, so hard. It was seven years of hard. And I tell readers all the time, I read all this research about the real children. It's based at the Dozier School for Boys in Marion, yeah. thinly disguised <laughs> in a town called Gracetown. But I read all that research. There are things that I read I can't I couldn't even talk about on book tour, you know, like real things that happen to children, because it's like, why do you want people carrying that in your head? So it really moves me so much to hear you say that. First of all, to to even mention ghost story, because I just wrote a blurb for the Peter Straub estate, you know, about him for, yeah. and he was so generous and, and such a wonderful, Love wonderful Peter. artist and so sad he's gone. So yeah, I'm just yeah. glad that it resonated with you that for you to call it fun means everything because it was not a fun ride <laughs> at all. I believe it. I, you know, I, you know, hundred percent. I, I kind of feel like you want to carry your own cross. <laughs> if, if, if you're going into an arena that causes you real pain, the yeah. point is not to give that pain to the reader. You don't give them enough to cripple them or send them into a place where they need to yeah. break rapport with you. You can give them just enough poison to make them dizzy. Just <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it's, it's your responsibility to do that. And I think an awful lot of writers poison themselves trying to process all the pain of the world and find some way to put it into, into fiction. You know, it's one of the reasons I think that this is, you know, storytellers, you know, this is a holy profession in a real way. Stories give context. How do you, you have just, you took multi-generational pain in your family, sweetheart, and you turned it into a popular entertainment without mm -hmm. losing the integrity. You're, you know, you have not, you did not ignore your ancestors. No, yeah. I wanted to honor them without all of us drowning, right? In, yeah. in their pain. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thank what you. What about for you, that. Joe? Do you, do you dig into your personal angsts, your historical angst? Sometimes. You know? Yeah. Sometimes. Depends on the story. I mean, I know that, I know that, you know, everything you were just saying, you know, really resonated with me. I, I, you know, I had, when my first novel came out, it was a it was a hit and um you know it's heart shaped box and i up until that time i had most of my experience with failure mm. uh, i had written four novels that i was never able to sell um you know i dozens of short stories i you know collected over a thousand rejection letters and i was mentally unprepared for success and so after heart shaped box i did the the traditional thing um, that you do following success, which is I got divorced and had a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. um, and I I, I had, couldn't find my way into the second book to save my life. I, I wrote a piece of this and a piece of that. Everything was terrible. And getting the second book written was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Now, and what book was that, Joe? Horns. Ah, okay. And... Well and you know, there's a thing. Sometimes you'll hear, you'll hear, you know, you know, really pretentious rock stars say, you know, uh, I don't know how people can dance to that song. I was in so much pain when I wrote it, you know, and you're always like, what are you talking about? Actually, I, actually, I kind of relate. I, I kind of get it. You know, I, I'm proud of Horns. And I think that it's a book that, a, you know, a lot of people have really connected with. Personally, I hate to think about it. You know, I, I at some point I'm going to have to reread it. I haven't looked at it in years. At some point, you know, I'm going to I want to go back and reread it. But, you know, but it's like approaching a radioactive object 
for me. Um, there's a there's a thing in Chernobyl. There's a piece of melted slag called the elephant's foot, which is the most radioactive object on the planet. You know, and I sometimes feel that second novel horns for me is like my personal elephant's foot. I, I almost don't want to go anywhere near it because it was just I just dislike everything about who I was when I wrote it. What I, was the what was the motivating image or sensation? What what made you feel that this was something you had to write? What did it connect to in your experience? So 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 I I'm I haven't said too much and I, I generally don't say too much about everything that was running through my head. Um, but I had, a, you know, at the time, but I had, I did have, you know, it's not, a, people suffer much worse. They have much more serious emotional problems. I did have, I did have a kind of paranoid nervous breakdown. Um, and, you know, my head just whirled with paranoid fantasies. And, and, you know, and that's, that's really what the book is about. You know, mm. the book is about in the first chapter, you know, this guy goes out at night, he's been blamed for killing his girlfriend. He goes out at night and gets drunk and curses God. And when he wakes up the next morning, he's growing a pair of horns and he's inherited all the powers of the devil. And everyone he encounters feels compelled to tell them their, tell him their darkest secrets, their worst sins, and then ask permission to do more. And, and, you know, no matter who he goes to, his family, you know, his doctor, his priest, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And that's like what the inside of my head was, you know, that first part, the first 70, when I finally latched in, I was like, and it thought, okay, here's my concept. The first 70 pages, actually that, that at least wrote pretty quickly and pretty easily. It was the rest of the book that was difficult to, difficult to do because I couldn't get out of my own way. Well, let me ask you this, because with the reformatory, for me, it dragged on for years. I would work on anything and everything except that to avoid it. And <laughs> and then COVID hit. And it was the thought, oh, my God, I could die before I finish this book. Like 2020, when there was no vaccine, mm. when people were dying. It's like I could I even talked to Steve about what to do and what writer he should contact to work with him to finish it. And I put myself on a page quota. <laughs> Did you have a, a similar like? focusing moment when you were working on horns that got you over the the worst of it i know that both both uh both my dad and i occasionally will send each other drafts of books that are are mostly finished before we fly mm -hmm. just in case just in case you know the plane doesn't actually land so i right. relate to the kind of okay you know if i don't make it here's what to do with the book um, <laughs> yes uh, cause that's obviously the most important thing is, you know, never mind that I just died and left. Yeah, no, it's all about we, the book. You can't it's do anything right. about the, about the dead, but we can do something about that, that dream, you know, that True. we all have that sense that, you know, communication, the web of our associations with our families keeps us alive. You know, this is immortality, you know, and yeah. and with art, kind of the same thing, but really what it is, is that sense of is there anyone out there who gets me is there yeah. anyone out there who really has any sense of what's behind my eyes you know and what's in my heart i think that that we are so desperate to believe that the people around us you know that existential angst thing that i'm going to go in the ground forever thing yeah and, and all we I keep say, is what we give away 
as horror writers, that's always in my head. <laughs> I think, I don't know about you, but I have a fixation almost with mortality, which is... On my on your own death, on the subject of your own death. I mean... The reality also, of it, yeah. I also think getting a story down on the page that, you know, means something to you emotionally and hopefully means something to other people, you know, is in some ways, you know... Um, you know, a lasting sort of thing that you can give to the people in your life. Yes. Um, Cause I'm not actually that interesting off the page. Um, so, you know, sort of the most interesting thing I could leave the people in my life would be my stories. Um, because just as a sort of dude away from the keyboard, you know, I don't know, not really, <laughs> you know, I mean, not really that terribly fascinating. I think, I think people, um, people get excited about an author's work and want to meet them. Um, and that can be a fraught proposition and somewhat occasionally disappointing when I do, when I do like events, I'm, I'm, I'm performing myself. I'm putting on a performance as a kind of more interesting Joe Hill, a funnier, (laughs) you know, but that's not really who I am at home. You see, that's perfect. perfect. I was a guest of honor at a convention with Nichelle Nichols and I had to, I had a chance to spend some time with her and she was giving me advice, career advice. And she said, people don't really want to know who you are. They don't know about your your weaknesses, your frailties. You create a simplified version of yourself. It's not a lie, but you let them interact with that simplified version. And you keep the real you for your circle of intimates. But but it's not just for your own protection. It's also to give your readers or your fans what they need from you. You know, and I thought that was so wise. Yeah. Yes, I agree 100%. Yes, absolutely. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You know, one of the things, one of the things is that, you know, with social media, writers are on the stage all the time now. You know, they're never not at an event. Every time you go on social media, you're back in the bookstore speaking to your audience, speaking to your readership. Um, And I think... You know, that raises some questions about, well, what am I doing when I am on social media? What do I share there and what don't I share there? What am I keeping? What do I need to keep for me Um, so that the work still has so that, you know, my family still has something um, and that my work still has something. And you Uh, still have something. Yeah. Something for yourself. Your life becomes purely performative. That's why when I go on social media, I mostly just want to talk about horror films. Yeah. That you know, yeah. and I have to agree with you on that. I used to back in the day use Twitter uh in a more political way, you know, and like Ferguson and Trayvon yeah. Martin 
and now um for a variety of reasons the the basic destruction of twitter by its new owner uh yeah the sort of the craziness of the world in general i've really pulled back on political posts i mean a lot in fact i would say they're rare at this point which which used to define me on social media now it's more like you said talking about horror is a safe space because the horror community right now <laughs> is a beautiful and thriving place. It's my happy place and humor, you know, just trying to make people laugh. My wife is, my wife is always surprised or has expressed my wife works in publishing. Um, her professional name is, uh, Jillian Redfern and she is a senior editor at Galand, which is a big fantasy science fiction imprint in, in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and she publishes a lot of fantasy and a lot of science fiction, but not a whole lot of horror. And, and because we've been together, she's really gotten to know the horror community. And one of the things she always says is that everyone in the horror community are like the sweetest, nicest, most inoffensive, friendliest, you know, people she's, that it, it's, it's been a shock to her at how sunny um, everyone in the horror community is. And I don't really, she's totally right. I don't exactly know how, why that is. Oh, it's because you, it's because your writing is, is feeding on your shadow. Oh, I love that. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. And that makes, that makes room for the light. You found your therapy. That, that you, you don't, people are often in denial of the darkness within themselves and then it turns on them and eats them. Whereas the people who go deeply into that are constantly looking at the fear and looking at the pain. Whereas most people ignore that and deny that. So in that sense, I, I think you're completely correct that the more deeply you go into that, you're, you're, it's like you're, you're cleaning out the sewage from your basement. Yeah. You're, you're, you're actually turning it into fertilizer. And, you know, I, go ahead. Go go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I've rarely met authors who were a-holes, but in horror, like, as I'm thinking of all the names, it's like, everyone is so sweet. That's all. (laughs) Well, well, the other thing is, is I think from the outside, especially people who don't much care for horror fiction or horror films, I think there's a general belief that horror is about sadism, but actually horror is about empathy. Um, horror is about seeing, you know, in, in a good horror story, you're introduced to characters you love and identify with and care about people you're rooting for. And then, and then you see those people facing the absolute worst. Yes. So, um, confronted with, um, some of the most pain and, and, you know, some of the most fear that human beings can, I mean, that's really the reformatory. In a lot of ways, that's really the, mm. that's really how the reformatory works, um, and so that's not that's not you know that's about um, you know in that sense, people who are are into horror fiction are people who are you know are thinking about compassion. Um, at least, at least that's my operating theory. I agree, compassion, and also for me, it's preparation too because I. I felt that I had such a gentle childhood compared to my parents, right? My, my The first horror fan in my life was my mom, who was a civil rights activist and wore dark glasses her whole adult life after being tear gassed. And she did carry a lot of trauma in her body. And she loved horror. So it was only after Horror Noir, we did that documentary, A History of Black Horror for Shudder, I started to think about it. I never got to ask her, though, about that direct connection between her trauma and her love for horror, but it definitely does work as sort of a necessary nutrient for me to get past that overactive imagination I have about my own mortality and and the the temporal nature of our existence. You can ask questions. 
writing is magic. You're putting ink spots on a page and people are feeling something. And that suspension of disbelief thing, you're, you're pulling them in. When it's a horror story, you, you get to ask the question, why would anybody voluntarily do this? There has to be a part of our minds that says, I don't want to go down that road. So how do you do that? And the very best in the field, what they do is exactly what you said, Joe. They create people. It's who about the people. You love and you care about and social contexts that you believe in. It's like, oh, I've been in that town. I know these people. And now slowly you begin to integrate, you begin to, to twist and turn. And if you do it right, if the empathy is created, I mean, we've all had that experience of getting up at two o'clock in the morning to get a glass of milk and you turn on the television while you drink it and you get sucked into something. Mm-hmm. And you've got to know how it ends. And the, the, the worse the situation gets, the more you have, the more the mundane aspect of the story. It was like alien work partially because they were blue collar guys. These weren't scientists. Yeah. Or in the yeah. Original movie. It was just, they were just people. They were talking about, you know, the, the bonus situation. It was, yeah. And because we, you know, oh, I, I recognize those. Those are Teamsters. I recognize those people. Now the cosmic horror is anchored in the mundane emotions and the re- the viewer and the reader have no option but to stay on the roller coaster yeah. ride with you. What is going to happen? Um, Tanana Reeves said it was about it's about practice too. I'm 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 friends with the horrors about practice. I'm friends with a, a horror researcher in Denmark, uh, a Dane named Matthias Clausen, um, who wrote a book called How Horror Seduces, which I think is the best nonfiction work about the genre in the last 20 years. Mm. Really tremendous read. He he tackles horror fiction and horror film from uh, the point of view of evolutionary science. He wrote a widely, he co-authored a widely quoted study that showed conclusively that horror fans adapted to the pandemic lockdowns better than people who don't like horror. Oh, that was his study. I heard about it. That's his study. And I'm, you know, who, no one can be surprised by this. We've all already played out that scenario. The contagion, captain trips, you know, what's your plan during the zombie apocalypse? You know, and so when, when, you know, COVID hit and, you know, and, and everything changed in 2020 and 2021 and people were stuck at home and they were masking up, you know, if, if, if you were a horror fan to a degree, you've already lived it. Of course, yes. you would emotionally adapt faster than, you know, someone who, um, who doesn't watch that kind of thing or read that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I've had, I've had people, been on panels, people talk about, well, why would anybody read that stuff, watch that stuff? You know, it's, it, and it's, it triggers violence in people and this and this. And I said, you know, I don't know if I'm the only person in this room who's willing to admit that I love this and I think that it is a healthy expression of my stresses. Mm. There are times when I just want to sit and watch, you know, it's like, I'm just going to be honest. You know, there is some sort of a thing, let's say it has, it tinges racially, you know, trade yeah. on this and the other. There's part, there's nothing's going to satisfy except watching Jason kill some white teenagers. <laughs> you know, yeah. bring it on. <laughs> it's, it's this people, podcast does not actually condone the killing of my teenagers. It's a release. They, they think I'm joking. 
But it's the truth is that there are all sorts of things that I have fears about and concerns about and resentments about. And I don't want that to ever get between me and being able to love the people around me and being able to see the humanity in the people around me. So I I do it in my, in my fantasies. I get it all out in my fantasies. You know, it's I think that we all living things try to move away from pain toward pleasure. And mm. we try to do what we can to make it through our lives with a certain degree of integrity. And our entertainments are as important. They're not just frosting on the cake. They're mm. meat and potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. I'm I'm friends with uh, a fellow named Christopher Golden, who's a great horror writer. Yes, and, of course. Uh, yeah, Chris is a, you know, uh, one of the really good guys in the business. And um, I went to go see, I, I remember having sort of this kind of, personal revelation i went to go see uh, a not very not spectacular horror film with him uh, i can't remember what it was maybe it was maybe it was the sequel to the ring okay ring two you know something like that. yeah ring two <laughs> but i remember it has a lot of jump scares in it and we went to go see it opening night and the audience was you know the theater was packed with teenagers and i noticed that there'd be a jump scare and everyone would scream, except for me and Chris, who would grab each other and burst into laughter. You know, and we we laughed our way through the whole film. And over the years, I've noticed when I go see a scary movie with with other horror writers, that happens a lot. There's a lot of laughing. Yeah. And, you know, you were saying what you were just saying about, you know, um, watching Jason Voorhees knock off some teenagers. You know, the slasher films, especially from the 80s. I don't know if they're great horror, but a lot of them are terrific slapstick comedy. Yeah, especially <laughs> especially if your interior wiring is the interior if, wiring if, of a horror sick, role, someone who if, loves the genre. I was the only person in the theater who laughed at the end of the mist. Oh boy! Oh boy! That's <laughs> I, I, no, that is, see, I don't find that funny. <laughs> well, I don't, it is the cinematic. It is a indie. little bit though. It is a little bit because, like, because. Because right after he kills everyone, the mystical is like, <laughs> joke's on you. That's right. It was the cosmic absurdity of it. It's the thing. You go all the way to through yin and you get to yang. All the way to yang, you get to yin. Yeah. There's a point where this is just so much that the only thing we can do is laugh. And I think that screams <laughs> and laughter are right next to each other neurologically. They're, they're almost the same thing. I say I, this all the time. I, this is like a routine. This is like you know, right out of my, you know, when I do events and stuff, this comes up all the time. When you watch, when you watch the three stooges and Larry <laughs> hits Mo with a sledgehammer, you laugh. When you watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Leatherface hits a teenager with a sledgehammer and blood spatters into the camera, you scream, but it's fundamentally the same scene. That's You're nice. actually watching the same scene and both is kind of reaching into your amygdala, you know, it's it's getting deep into your brain and provoking this kind of, you know, um, reflexive vocalization. And that reflexive vocalization is the scream of the laugh. We um, we had a, a, oh, sorry, I'm always. No, no, go ahead. That's it. That's the whole, that's the whole spiel. That's to great. jump in, yeah. but we had the chance to have a, a conversation with Jordan Peele about that on not our podcast, but a, a Black Horror class, actually sunkenplaceclass.com. It's a digital download course now that I think about it. But when he talked about that relationship between the laugh and the scream, because somebody was so, everybody was so surprised 
when he came out as a huge horror guy. And no, it's always been there. And it's basically the same misdirection of expectations, he said. So that misdirection of expectations can lead to a laugh or it can lead to a scream. And I wanted to go back to that movie theater with you and Christopher Golden. I wonder if you think there's a generational difference. Like the teenagers are scared. Is it because <laughs> is it because they haven't been through anything yet? Like they haven't oh. lost a parent. They haven't, you know, they haven't had as much life trauma as you and Christopher had? or, or I don't know. Uh, maybe. Maybe that's a little bit of it. I mean, I do think one famous function of horror films going back to at least the, you know, the 50s is, is you know, for young folks to go to the movie theater together and grab each other in the dark. Ah! Uh, okay. You know, yeah. and that's like an important kind of, you know, we're going to share this. I don't know. That's a really good question. Maybe, 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 um, maybe, you know, the kids, teenagers, 20 somethings, maybe they like to go to horror films because adult life is scary, mm. but you don't admit it to yourself. And that, you know, a horror film is an opportunity to kind of let it out, to just scream at sort of like, oh my God, I'm an animal on planet earth. And all this terrible stuff is waiting for me. Like someday, you know, I'm going to have a baby or, you know, or whatever, <laughs> or, or, or someday this, right. Or two, <laughs> you know, someday, you know, um, who knows? I don't know. You know, um, but, but so maybe, maybe that's part of the appeal, but also, I mean, it's an, it's an adrenaline rush, you know, yes, absolutely. Like, you know, and that feels good. The aftermath of the adrenaline rush feels good. I well, think that uh, we all, there is a range <laughs> within which we can live. And that's true with te- with temperature, with air pressure, and it's true with emotion. And mm. trying to keep yourself in the range where you can function. You can get up every day and trade another chunk of your life for the paycheck that keeps the roof over your head. And no- watching your parents get older, watching your grandparents die, understanding you're on the same damn train. Yeah. And what's going on here? I think we're constantly in that. Let me let me jack up my tension by watching Die Hard. Let me release my tension by watching Blazing Saddles. Let me pretend that I'm addressing death, ha ha ha, by watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Let me get a little closer to something reality with Silence of the Lambs. Mm. Let me go all the way into the nightmare and watch Martyrs. You know that that what you can handle that 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 gives your life meaning or allows you to stay in the temperate zone is varies from time to time. You know, sometimes you just yeah. need to laugh and like the Brady Bunch movie was a lifesaver. The la- right after the last time I saw my <laughs> father while he was dying of cancer, oh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I drove home, I stayed in a little hotel mm. in Oregon and I was just, you know, crying in my room. I said, let me get out of my room. And I saw the Brady Bunch movie and I went there and I laughed myself sick and vented that. And, and a good horror movie would have done the same thing. Yeah, it would no. have taken me in and, and take me through it. Steven Soderbergh said a thing once. I, I love his films. You know, I think he's an amazing filmmaker and an amazing thinker. But he said one something once that I really disagreed with where he said, you know, that art doesn't really basically, art doesn't really basically matter. You know, that it's mm. not really, you know, um, art never made a difference in anyone's life or something along those lines. And I'm probably mangling the quote, you know, mangling his his sentiment. But I I I think that that's, I think that's, you know, a, a pretty, you know. He's wrong. 
take. I think it's a pretty wrong take. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and the crazy thing is not only can not only can great art, the right book at the right time, you know, make a huge difference in someone's life. Sometimes a, a not even very good movie or a not even very good book can be just exactly what you needed. You know, um, yeah. I remember going to see American Pie 2 a few days after 9-11. Mm. You know, and it was weird. It was just I, all I had thought about was people leaping to their death for three days. All I had thought about was I was just, you know, this unbelievable, you know, horrifying thing that people watch live on TV. And and, you know, and it was just like that movie was it, it's not a good film. It's not a great comedy or anything like that. But it was like a cold washcloth across a fevered forehead. Yeah. Uh, and actually, and actually, I came out of that movie with an idea for a short story that sort of became the pivot point of my whole career professionally. It was sort of like the, you know, I, you know, I was watching the film and I was looking at these, you know, attractive young people. And I was thinking in this film, these kids are, you know, in their early 20s, uh, fit, young and sexy. And they're going to be that way in this film forever. But someday they're going to be dead, too, like the people in the towers. Someday, you know, sickness is going to come for them. Tragedy is going to come for them, you know. And when they're gone, they'll be ghosts. The, every time you watch this film, you'll be watching ghosts. On mm. the screen. And wow. I started, I was watching this in this small town, this giant, rotting, small town movie theater. And I started to think about, um, you know, I started to imagine, what if you loved the movie so much that after you died, you kept going, you know, that you just, you just had to get to the new release every week, you know? And I wound up writing a story called 20th century ghost about a guy who meets the girl who haunts his small town movie theater and how that changes his life. And that, that short story sort of opened up, you know, a whole realm of the possibility for me, you know, it sort of, it was, it was the, the, the one of two or three real turning points in my career running that story. Beautiful. Nice. And I love that it's a short story. You just gave a real gift to our listeners. What you just said right there over the last 90 seconds, two, two minutes is the core of what we try to do on this show, which is take successful artists or artists on the path, you know, of mastery that thing Mm. and asking, how do you, connect with the powerful emotion that drives the work that uh, and then you combine that with the craft so that you are communicating to people so that they are feeling and going through an an experience similar to what you felt when you were writing and it's like i feel Mm. these powerful emotions i'm going to use my skill and my words my structure and so forth to communicate it and then on the other end i'm praying that there's someone who is enough like me that they feel these things so I, I want to make sure that our listeners, you know, back up and listen to what Joe was just saying about that. This is this is your path to doing the best work you're capable of doing is to make sure that you're starting with a powerful emotion. Yes, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned the short story form. We're always encouraging writers to embrace the short story form for a variety of reasons. And even though they're not short stories, Joe, I have to say I am reading Strange Weather. I'm a little late, Uh, but I am reading it because I've read that that's one of your favorite books of your own. 
And that that first one with uh, the teenage protagonist, of course, That's reminds right. me of how much, yeah, how much I love writing children and teenagers and how loss of innocence is is a theme that I come back to again and again. And you write children so well. And obviously the Black Phone, you have children. Nosferatu focuses on children. Is that something that you that you return to? Is it loss of innocence or or the child mind? What fascinates you about writing children? Well, instead of answering the question, I'm going to turn it around back on you. Okay. Because um, because we were just talking about how comedy and horror are the same thing. But have you ever noticed how close horror and young adult fiction are? That 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 huh. horror is almost like horror is almost like one step to the right of young adult fiction. And why is that? That's so strange. I mean, because the reformatory features two, you know, young adult protagonists. I think the boy is like 13. And yeah, he's like 12 or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're real young. I've read, there's a horror writer named Scott Carson. I'm actually the pen name for Michael Carita. And he's got a new book out, I think in March called Lost Man's Lane. You know, it's really scary. It's a great thriller. You know, it's set in like 1999, the year 2000, you know, right sort of as the millennium, as we shifted over into the new millennium. Again, every character in it, I mean, every character in it is like Harry Potter age. They're all, they're all teenagers. So many of the horror stories I love from, you know, something wicked this way comes to, you know, um, I don't know, it you know they're it's ch- it's children you know lock and key my comic lock and key is you know is there it, all the protagonists are kids another example so so what is that why <laughs> what is that why are why is why is why is the it seems to me that the difference between a young adult novel and and many horror novels is you know is an r rating And not even that sometimes, to be honest, you know, because Steve and I wrote a couple of young adult zombie novels, Devil's Wake and Domino Falls. And while we were researching that, our editor was like, don't be shy about the sex, the drug, none of that. Don't be shy there. That's what they're reading. And and what what, what killed us was that we had to literally cut the book in half, right? Like the book was supposed to be one book, but because young adult books are packaged differently. The length of it meant we literally had to chop it in half. So it was a duology. Uh, it became one book. It became, became a duology. Yeah, that's how it that's became really a duology. And we talked. To, I talked to my agent Donald Moss about whether the reformatory should be young adult, like way way back in the beginning. And his feeling was no. <laughs> and I didn't quite get all the reasons because it, it does fulfill the rules. The kids are in charge. The right. kids are what make everything happen. They're not relying on the adults to get them out of the situation. So that right. is all true. But I think it's the length. Some of the language and use of language maybe is a little bit different, but you're you're right about that. A lot of horror fans love reading and watching kids in peril, not because we hate kids, but I think for me, I remember, <laughs> I remember being that kid. I remember very vividly being that 12-year-old kid, seeing the world through different eyes for the first time. And it's it's scary, that, that coming-of-age awareness, loss-of-innocence moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I also think that 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 horror. One of the things I love about the genre is that horror is always taken up for vulnerable populations. You know, it's looked at who doesn't have power, who is already at risk, and then it plunges them into 
horrifying scenarios. Children, of course, have very little power. So, you know, when they begin talking about apparitions, when they begin to think there's a serial killer who's, you know, working a town or whatever, no one believes them, no one listens to them. You know, uh, I was just thinking, I was thinking about Stranger Things, which I love. I mean, is Stranger mm. Things a horror show or is it a young adult show? I don't really know. Isn't it kind of both? And both. Uh, How would you define horror? I'm interested in that. <clears throat> horror is horror is what happens. It's what we talked about earlier. It's what happens when people you care about are faced with the worst that humans can face, or even a little beyond. Um, you know, when you're talking and and when I when I discuss it, when I I talk about it in you know in the sense of preparation of rehearsal in the way that we were talking about it earlier in the way that Matthias Clausen talks about it. You know, the example I use is vampires aren't real. You're never going to be attacked by a vampire. You're never going to feel your life force draining away night by night as you're preyed upon by an, an amoral and invisible force um, that wants to wipe you out. That's never, ever going to happen to you. But some people, some people will get a cancer diagnosis in their mm-hmm. life, you know. Um, and then you will find yourself grappling with an opponent you can't see that's making you weaker every day. And I think that we have a need. You know, fiction offers a, a safe playground of the imagination where where you can go and you can try some things out and even have fun doing it without really experiencing it. You know, and maybe you could look at maybe, you know, you're in the vampire scenario. You can you're reading the book and you could say, well, I wouldn't want to be like that guy. I wouldn't want to go out, you know, you know, you, you touched so on miserably. Right. You, you touched on something there that I I, I'm, I really want to talk about because it, it connects to something that Jordan Peele was talking about that in Get Out, he put a discussion on the screen that I'd never seen anybody put before the concerning race and fear and wondering who you can trust so forth. And I think that it became a water cooler conversation because he knew how close he could get to the thing that we're afraid of in this country, that, you know, our, our original sin in one particular way. He knew how to make you laugh when he needed to to release enough tension that you didn't go into that it's only a movie space. If it gets too tense, you do that it's only a movie to release. But if he can make you laugh, it releases enough tension to keep you in the bubble, to keep you in the place where you've got no escape. You have to keep empathizing with what's going on. So humor is one of the great tools yeah. to enable you to kind of stay right. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to keep you right where I want you. There is no escape. You don't get to, you don't get to, to shut down on this. I'll make you laugh, diminish the tension, keep you there. So, so a couple of things there. One, I saw Get Out opening night and you want to talk about humor and horror being closely wired together. The main character is walking through a suburb in the first six minutes of the film. Yes. Black guy walking through really Tony suburb and a cop car rolls up behind him and it's just creeping along a few feet behind him. And he says, okay, here we go. And, and I actually thought that was the scariest part of the film. I thought, I thought, Oh boy, where is this going in the next couple of minutes? This could get, this could get really bad. Cause we're all running that scenario through right. our head. There's fear. But it's there's also funny, guilt. but I mean, the th- but the theater also laughed. I mean, the theater was yes. like, here we go. Because he goes, it nope. takes a world-class, 
comic. I'd never been around a world-class comic in a relaxed situation where he was very clearly capable of making you laugh or think at any moment. At any moment in the conversation, he could turn it into a hysterical joke. And it's, I'd never seen that up close before, you know, in a, in a relaxed way. And I, to what degree do you think hu- you have used humor to enhance horror? Well, let me go back to Jordan Peele for a second. Do you remember, you remember in Candyman, in the Candyman remake, there's a moment where this woman is looking down in the basement and there's like rusty chains hanging. She's looking for a place to hide. She's worried like the serial killer is going to come back to the shop. She opens the door, she looks down in the basement and it's like dirt floor, and like chains hanging from the ceiling and cobwebs everywhere. And she stares down, she looks at the doorway and it holds on her for like one second. Then she goes, nope. Yeah, <laughs> everyone busted up because it's like, like you know, in any other film, she she runs and hides in the basement. You're thinking, don't go down there. It was just great that it was like, and that's like that's like a classic Jordan. That's like a Jordan Peele. It is, story. and that's one, one of it his is. techniques is that he feels like he can keep people in that bubble that Steve was talking you know, about. If you, also, if you acknowledge the reality, like the audience is thinking, don't go down there. Yeah, if, yeah. If you have a character who vocalizes what the audience is thinking, you can get away with more. So part of the game, especially in modern horror, part of the game now is everyone's seen a lot of horror and read a lot of horror. And so you you have to try to avoid, you know, egregiously stupid protagonists doing things that people only do in horror movies and, and, you know, horror novels. But on the other hand, on the other hand, you know, people living their lives don't think I'm in a horror movie and actually do make a lot of choices that are sort of by horror movie logic, not always that great. Well, you can do a fun movie, you know, where it's slightly meta in terms of the people in the movie have seen horror movies, okay? Then there are other movies where it's just, it might as well be the horror movies don't exist. Yeah. That that (laughs) people are all the way in there, and we're just on that right. Like I said, movies like Martyrs, which I think is as close to an unwatchable movie as I've ever seen that I consider to be a film of value. Mm. Because I think they had a serious question at the core of that movie. So the horror was in service to the notion we would do anything to find out what happens on the other side of death. I believe mm. that, that, that that's that's a reality. It would it have been possible for Jordan Peele to have made that movie funny? Yeah, he, he could have. There's a funny premise in there someplace, but to the degree that I think, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying to figure out how do you make a comedy, a, a musical <laughs> comedy out of ma- martyrs, <laughs> a musical. <laughs> anyway, but it's so Joe. Yeah, I wanted to, to ask you because uh, the focus of our podcast, life writing, is really yeah. sort of the life and the artist sort of entwined. So how do you strike work art life balance? I mean, I hope you don't mind mentioning, I know you have twins. Yeah. 20 month old twins. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't slept in 20 months. I've actually been hallucinating this entire conversation. Yeah. We're <laughs> well, not here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> actually my computers, the, the, the funny thing is my computer is actually turned off right now and I'm just speaking to a dark screen and you know, and um, <laughs> that's hysterical. It's a, it's a tumor. Um, joke <laughs> yeah. the um the um well you know you know post pandemic you know um my wife was able to move her work at home and she still even even though things have theoretically gone back to normal 
I don't know if I don't know if that's true, but but even if even though things have theoretically gone back to normal, you know, she she still primarily works from home, uh, you know, which that's is great. a huge blessing because her office is in London and I'm in America. So mm. it would be I don't know, you know, we'd probably be living over there if she had to be in the office every day, which would be all right. I mean, that would be fine. We we would have made that. But so so we, you know, we split childcare and work time and make it work, patch it together. And, you know, it's really just us. We don't have like, you know, anyone to help with the kids or anything, but that's, but that's all right. Um, you know, the kids are a blast and a lot of fun and it's great to discover books with them. And it's funny how, it's funny how, um, you know, I, I was talking to her this morning. It's funny how, how sad it is to be too. I mean, you're always crying. Things are always yes. Things that, you know, and, and I mean, they're like, they're like spring rain showers. It doesn't really have any deep, it's just, you know, it showers and then it stops and then they're back to laughing again and stuff. But isn't it too bad that the first couple of years of our life, we have to spend so much time in tears. I love the empathy of that observation because most people are like thinking about it from the other end, like what a pain it is to hear people crying rather than feeling bad for your kids. There's an entire psychotherapeutic discipline called core transformation out of Colorado that says that all human behavior, whether it's positive or negative, the worst behavior you can, you can point to or the best is nothing but an attempt to reconnect with the peace we felt in the womb. Mm. That, that once upon a well, time, that's like the kind would, of thing my mom talks about. Yeah. You know, and you know, so my mom t- is a could, big believer in that kind of thing. Absolutely. You could, you could take the most evil person, and ask them what the purpose of their action was. And then if if your purpose was totally fulfilled, what then? And they will then come to a different question. Well, if I had all the money I needed, then I'd do this. And if you, you know, and I'd be able to make friends. And if you had all the friends you needed, then what? Well, I wouldn't feel alone and I'd be able to, to feel safe. And if you felt totally safe, then what? And you can literally walk them from mugging and killing an old woman down yeah. to tears and the sense of, I just want to feel connected to God or my mother's heart or whatever. Mm. And that everything we ever do. So when you talk about those two-year-olds, maybe they're still young enough to remember what it was to be totally peaceful, but they're beginning (laughs) to see that the world is going to do everything in its power to stop you from getting back there. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I do think that there, I mean, I wonder, I do think that there are some people who are fundamentally maybe broken. It's possible. It's possible. You know, I think although, there are predators. Although, you know, Danana even in the reformatory, I mean, I can't believe but you, you even found, unless I'm totally crazy and you can tell me if I'm crazy. I thought there were a couple moments where you even found some empathy for that. Uh, the warden. The, yeah. The bag of shit who ran the reformatory. <laughs> I mean, he is the most terrible human. He is the, he is a hideous human being. A hideous human being. But I thought there were a couple moments there where, I don't know, there was almost like, you know, there was some trace of humanity there at some point. Some of that was playing with the reader, Joe. But some of that was also. <laughs> some of that is also. He was pretty terrible, even as a child. So that's what, but actually, that's what I'm talking about, about people being fundamentally broken, though. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I think you're right. I also think that there is a tiny percentage of people who are pure predators. They literally yes. take pleasure from yes. causing pain. I mean, the, the, literally, like watching a cat play with a mouse or a lizard. Yes. Don't tell uh, yes. me that that, that that instinct isn't there. I mean, and 
it, it I had one veteran, we were talking about, about war. And I said that at a convention and the room was packed. And I made the comment that one of the things that veterans can't tell people is that one of the horrors of war is they discover that it feels good to mm. do these terrible things. So and unleash that. that. You can't tell anybody that because no one will understand it. You've been forced to discover something about yourself that is totally verboten to if, feel. And it feels good that you're yeah. alive. He's dead. That's right. That's right. So we that instinct that it literally feels good to do this thing. You discover mm. that. What do you do with that? And I had a veteran who was in the room, sit standing in the back, listening to all this conversation, come up to me afterwards very quietly and said that I was the only civilian who he'd ever heard speak that truth. And thank you. Wow. You know, wow. so I think that, that there are people who are broken and that part of that brokenness can be to go right down to the burning core of what we are, which is totally not politically correct has nothing to do with the social rules. It has to do with the animal, the reptile hind. Mm, mm. Uh, but, you, but know. you know, back to your point about Warden Haddock and the reformatory Joe, he really is one of those people who, as a kid, learned to connect to that place, that it felt good to hurt. That the way, name. the way you Haddock. get rid of... Yeah. It's a great name. I wanted it's to have like a little bit about it. Dickensian. I love that Haddock. That's I appreciate he that. Is he nope. is. And he came into the world kind of evil. But at the same time, because one of the monsters in the reformatory is Jim Crow, I wanted to make it clear, you know, some of this was intergenerational trauma for him, too. His grandfather was an overseer. And when you make a living lashing people on trees, you know, yeah. or hunting people down and killing them, that's going to trickle into your family culture as well. So you know, I'd yeah. like to pivot here just a little bit because we've been talking about reality on one level and we're talking about horror and humor on the other. And if our listeners enjoy the idea of how do you look at the, the philosophy of this, the psychology of this, how do you manage your skills in your life to produce the best work you're capable of? Now, I would strongly, strongly suggest that you take a look at our life writing program. It's a year of discussions like this, of the practical you know, applications of things, but also the underpinnings that allow you to to make your work a joyful thing, a healthy thing, a self-therapeutic thing at the same time that you're creating the best work you're capable of because it's nice to be able to pay the bills. And, and it is as simple as that. It's weekly digital downloads. So it's kind of like having a coach, you know, like you have a dead, deadlines. You set your own deadlines, but knowing those modules are coming every week, uh, we encourage you to write at least a sentence a day, which is the hallmark of our program, interviews with writers and screenwriters, and also our own lectures. I've lectured on writing at the Geneva Writers Conference. I taught an MFA program for, for more than 10 years. Check it out at www.lifewritingpremium.com. Joe Hill, our guest, I have, we don't, we would talk to you for like two and a half hours, but we don't want to take up that much of your day. So how can people find you? I know you have a newsletter. How do they join your newsletter? Yeah. So what, I think you could sign up over on, I think you can sign up on my website, joehillfiction.com. I'm terrible about keeping the website up to date, but I do do, I do do a newsletter, um, you know, once a month or try. I'm you know, I have the two kids. I have twins. I have, have twenty month old twins. So you know, my focus when I when I sit down to work is to actually get the pages written, and oh then gosh. stuff like you know, you know, promotion or you know, the newsletter or whatever like that is very you know after the fact. So, right. um, but yeah, JoeHillFiction.com. I'm on Blue Sky as Joe Hill something maybe. 
<laughs> if you follow Tanner, hey, there aren't that many people. Tanner even look under her follows. I'm under there somewhere. There you go. Probably. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Following you from site to site, just so we can Tanner, all keep in touch with guy? each other. He's not yet. He's I'm not, not but I, I might as well get on there. There's so many interesting people there. I'm going to be honest with you and say that I have looked forward to this conversation for months and that you do not disappoint at all. Oh, that's it's, you're not. so much fun. I we would, I'd love, it. I hope we have a chance to take you to dinner one day and sit down and continue this conversation. I would love that. Next time I'm out on the West Coast, be great to get together. Sure Absolutely. Just give us a call. Let us know. Okay. Let us take know. it home. So anyway, everybody, thank you to our guest who's been so great, Joe Hill. You guys, now that you've been so inspired by these stories, why don't you go out and make yourself the hero or heroine in your own story? The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.